one quick note as we get going this morning, that is, um, here at Central, we have for our pastoral staff, if you've served seven years faithfully, you get a one-month sabbatical. And uh, Ethan uh, has served seven years here at, at Central faithfully. We're thankful just for his, his service and his love for, for God and for the people. And so um, he's going to be taking sabbatical the month of July. So when you see him, just encourage him, let him know you're praying for him. It's an opportunity for him just to, to rest, to dream, to pray, and, uh, and to visit some other church uh, families and, and kind of brainstorm a little bit that way as well. So anyway, we're excited for him and for his family. But have you ever had one of those days when you're just look, like really thankful the day's over, you know? Just like, I'm, I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm so glad that's over with. I can just kind of move on to whatever's next because that was rough. And then you get up the next day and you think all that's going to be behind you, but then you're still like living in the wake of that mess, right? And you still got well all the consequences and everything well, I'm, I'm still going to deal with it all. So even though, yeah, that's behind me, this isn't that fun either, right? Maybe, maybe there's been some kind of storm or something, right? And the winds and the rain, it dies down, but now you got to deal with the damage of it all. Or, you know, there's been some kind of surgery or something. Oh, I'm glad the surgery is behind me, but now I got to go through rehab. And, you know, it's just, you know, there's a test that you take and, oh, I just bombed the test. I'm glad I'm done with that test. But now i got to deal with the after effects of just having failed that thing. Now where do I go from here? We, we've all had those situations in life, right? Where something, you know, hey, I'm glad that's behind me. And then you realize, well, it's not really behind me. I'm still kind of dealing with it. That's kind of the situation that we enter into in Esther chapter 8. You know, we left off last week in Esther chapter 7. It's almost like for many of us as we tell the story of Esther, it's kind of like the end of the book almost, right? Haman's dead. Uh... Esther, she's now publicly announced that she's a Jew, she's identified with God's people, she saved the day, everything looks great, and that's kind of where we end the story. The threat of death seems gone. Now we can just rejoice. What happens in Esther 8, 9, and 10? Well, those are probably just like inconsequential details. You know, we almost leave those out if you're telling the story of Esther. But as we look into those details, they're not inconsequential at all. In fact, all that rejoicing quickly turns to mourning. I want you to see it. We'll begin Esther chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Esther 8, 1 through 6. It reads, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if it seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? So one of the things I want you to see in Esther chapter 8 is that there's this incredible reversal that's, be, that's taking place, right? And it seems like everything that Haman has, well, it's now being transformed over to Mordecai and to Esther. 
the reversal really begins in Esther chapter 7, because in Esther chapter 7, what happens? The gallows that Haman has constructed for Mordecai, well, there's this reversal that takes place, and instead of Mordecai being hung on the gallows, Haman is hung on the gallows. And we're kind of rejoiced with that a little bit. You know, a little excited. Okay, Haman got his. Why? Because we sometimes fail to see the justice that our own sin deserves. But then you move on to Esther chapter 8, and this reversal continues. Because the king says, okay, now Haman's estate, Esther, it's all yours. You now have Haman's estate. And, well, how can the king just give Haman or Esther Haman's estate? Well, in those days, the Greek historian Herodotus, he tells us that when a condemned criminal dies, their property reverts to the crown. So in this case, Haman is the condemned criminal. He's put to death. And the property, his estate, then becomes the property of the king. He can do with it as he pleases, and what pleases him is to give the property to Esther. And what's more, at this time, Esther says to the king, Hey king, uh, listen, I've kind of neglected to tell you, but Mordecai, the guy that you honored the other day, well, he's actually my cousin, my adopted father. And so the king says, well, this is great. Let me take uh, the ring that I had, the signet ring that I had given to Haman, and now I'll give that to Mordecai. And so when you give someone the signet ring, we talked about this a little bit before, but just to give you another way to think of it, it's almost like giving them power of attorney, you know, in today's language. You know, sometimes if somebody is sick or elderly or they're just not thinking right, and maybe they'll appoint a power of attorney, someone who can make decisions for them, who will have their best interests at heart. And so that's essentially what the signet ring does. It gives Mordecai now the legal weight of the king to make decisions on behalf, laws on behalf, edicts on behalf of the king. And so there's this incredible reversal. Do you see it? This was Haman's, now it's Esther's, now it's Mordecai's. Everything that Haman once had is being reversed into the hands of Mordecai and Esther. It's incredible because when you meet them, they're Jews living in Persia. They're not supposed to be there, right? They've made bad decisions. That's why they're there. That's why they've stayed. And they probably didn't have a ton of authority. Maybe some, you know, it's probably a comfortable life. It's why they haven't left, but... They don't have any kind of real authority to speak of. And now they're, they have incredible authority. I mean, next to King Xerxes, that's his Greek name, right? Uh, Persian name, King Ahasuerus. Uh, they're probably the most powerful people on the earth at the time. That's, that's the incredible amount of authority that they have. Now, here's the thing. We all have some measure of authority, right? Maybe not that much, but we all have some measure of authority. And so how do we use, how do we exercise the measure of authority that we've been given? And sometimes God works circumstances and he, and he brings us into places where he allows us to have a measure of authority. And sometimes, you know, we don't want it, right? So, well, I don't want to lead. I, I'd rather somebody else take that. You know, I'll just kind of step back and somebody else can have that responsibility. I don't really want it. Listen, sometimes God opens those doors for us to have this authority and this influence in people's lives because it's not about us. It's not about our fear of failure or anything like that. It's about people. It's about opportunities to serve. And if we don't accept the authority that is sometimes granted to us, well, then other people will. 
And you see it here in Persia, right? Haman is gladly stepping up. Any measure of authority that he could have throughout the whole book, he's taking. And how does he exercise it? All self, self, selfishly. How are we supposed to exercise authority? Humbly, right? The first step and prerequisite really in handling authority well is humility. And you see that with Esther and with Mordecai. One of the other things you see is authority in itself well, that doesn't really take you very far. It's also about relationships and how you deal with people, how you exercise everything. And it's also about passion. And now we're beginning to see just the passion of Esther come out. Now, one of the things, my, my impact group, as we were discussing this last week, we talked about just the poise of Esther uh, in chapter 7. You know, when she meets, and this is the second meeting with the king, and the king again asks her, hey, what do you want? I'll give you up to half my kingdom. What do you want? And and Esther seems very composed, very poised, almost like, hey, she's been planning for this. She's been rehearsing in her mind. Okay, when the king asks me, this time I'm going to be ready. And so she gives her request very well. I mean, she's well-spoken, straightforward, bold, respectful, all these things. Here... It's almost like for the first time you really see this passionate Esther come out because what does she do? She's falling at the king's feet. She's weeping. She's pleading before the king. And the king extends his scepter to her. It's like, okay, I'm listening. Go ahead, speak. And then she starts to talk and she's just going a mile a minute, right? If, if it pleases the king and if it seems right to you and if I found favor in your eyes, if I'm pleasing to look at and all these things, if you care about me at all, you know, will you do this thing? And so you, you just see the passion come out. And what, what's she passionate about? The people. She's, a, she's passionate about God's people, which raises another question for us. What are you really passionate about? You know, what really gets you excited? That when you start talking, you, other people can just hear it in your voice. Oh man, this matters to them, right? There's a twinkle in your eye. You just light up as you talk about this subject because it's exciting. It's, it means something to you. You know, there's lots of things in life that we can get passionate about. And really, ultimately, it means very little, right? What matters? People. People matter. And for Esther, she's getting really passionate about the people. Because she's saying, how can I look at the calamity of my people? How can I just sit back and watch the destruction of my people? She's passionate. Something needs to happen. It's not about her. It's about the people, she wants to be sure they're all right. Why? Because she loves people genuinely. And I believe all of this reflects the heart of God. That when you accept authority humbly, when you use your passion constructively, and you love people genuinely, I believe that reflects the heart of God. And there's this real opportunity to impact people greatly. Uh, but it stems, I believe the underlying part of this all is this love for people genuinely. Because then you become passionate about people. And then, well, you're going to be humble in the way you exercise the authority. So that's the ultimate challenge there. Love people genuinely. And when you do, impact can happen. But right now, it doesn't seem like very much impact is going to happen. Because even though they were rejoicing just a moment ago, hey, all of, Mordecai, all of Haman's stuff is now ours. Everything that was supposed to happen to us has happened to Haman. This great reversal takes place, but there's still a huge problem. And that is just because Haman is dead, his edict 
is still very much alive. That was the trouble with those Medo-Persia edicts, that they could not be rescinded. Now, you can't just say, you know what, that was a bad law. Let's just have a do-over. We'll just kind of take that one off the books. We'll rescind it. No big deal. We'll amend it. No problem. That's the culture that we live in, right? If there's some law that you don't like, just wait long enough. There'll probably be a politician who comes around and changes it. That, that's, what we, that's what we live in. We're used to laws being amended, laws being changed, laws being taken off the books, and new laws being added. It was not that, it was not that way in Persia. Right? When a law was put in place, it was there for good. You could not just be done with it. You can read in Daniel 6. It talks all about this. Uh, and that's the case here. And so Queen Esther, well... She's panicked, so she's before the king, and she's pleading, and she's wailing so quickly. Her rejoicing has turned to mourning. And the, queen hold, or the king holds out his scepter, and it's as if he's saying to Esther, yes, I'm listening. I'm listening to your cries. I'm listening to your pleas. Present your requests. And so she says, well, if it pleases the king, let it be written. But that was the problem, you know. It already was written. It can't just be erased. And so she wants a new edict that kind of just does away with that edict. But you can't just do away with that edict. And so that's the predicament. That's, that's the situation that they're now facing. And so while this great reversal is taking place, this evil edict of the destruction of the Jews that would take place on the 13th day of the 12th month is still very much alive. So what happens next? Let's check it out. We'll continue the rest of Esther chapter 8, beginning in verse 7. It reads, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on, on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote, In the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods." On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. 
The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So, what I want you to see, this great reversal is taking place. And so the king, he hears the compassionate, genuine tears of his wife, and it just melts his heart, right? He's got to do something. And so what he does is he says to Mordecai, in a sense, okay, you have the signet ring. I can't just rescind that other law. That, that law is in place. You can't just take it away. You can't amend it. That's there. But here's what you can do. You can write another law that can maybe neutralize that previous law. And this is where it gets a little interesting for us because, you know, the way we like to tell the story, like I said before, is, well, hey, Haman's dead. The Jews are safe. Esther and Mordecai, they're awesome. The heroes, you know, they stood up with boldness. And now it's all good. You know, they live happily ever after the end. That's kind of like what we like to do. But this isn't that. And so we've got this edict to deal with. An edict that Mordecai puts in place where, hey, women and children can be killed and you can plunder the enemies and all these different things. And, and so there's this question, where, was Mordecai really justified in putting this edict into place? And a lot of times we don't really like to deal with it, you know? We, we like the whole idea, hey, love people genuinely. God loved us. That's great. Uh, so we can just kind of skip over this. And so when we tell the story to Esther, when we tell it to our kids, what happens? Well, this part of the story just gets forgotten. And then you know what happens? One day, they grow up, and they meet somebody else who takes them back to the Bible and says, well, did you know that this was in there? And then there was this, this decree, and they can kill women and children? What do you do with that? And then what happens? There's a crisis of the faith. It happens a lot, actually, all too frequently, where then they look, and they reason, well, I didn't know what kind of God would allow that. And there's a crisis of the faith, because how do I reconcile this with my view of God. Now, one thing we could do is just do a series on all the times that God like, gives instructions to his people to kill people, right? We could do maybe, maybe the rest of the summer, you know, just do that. Uh, I don't really want to do that, though. You know, that's, that's kind of a tough one to invite people to, right? Like, hey, my pastor, we're, we're doing this series about like when God gave the instructions to kill people, right? It doesn't really sound too nice. But I do want to deal with this. I do want to like, not just kind of gloss over it. I do want to wrestle it through because I don't want there to be a crisis of the faith one day for any of us when we look and say, well, I didn't realize the Bible said that. I, didn't, I can't like, reconcile this with my view of God. And at the same time, I don't ever want us to apologize for God either and be like, well, you know, the God in the Old Testament, sometimes he had a little bit of a temper, but by the time you get to the New Testament, he's much more compassionate. No, God is the same yesterday, today, forever. His character does not change. And so let, let's kind of go through this and think through it uh, biblically, I, I believe, and rightly to understand, okay, what is this edict about? Is it just? And I believe it was. I want to give you several reasons for why I believe Mordecai was right and just in giving this edict. Okay, number one, Haman was an Agagite, all right? We've talked about this a little bit before, but when you meet the Agites, you meet them back in Exodus, okay? And these people, they're intent on killing God's people. That's what they want to do. They want to wipe out God's people. So by the time you fast forward, 1 Samuel 15, 
Well, they're still intent on wiping out God's people. And at that time, uh, King Saul is given the command by God, hey, wipe out the Agites, all of them, every last one of them, be, you know, be done with them. King Saul doesn't do that. He allows them to live. He disobeys God. And so you're still dealing with this problem all the way now during the time of Esther. And the problem is what they want is for all the Jews dead, eradicated, off the earth completely. Listen, you can't really negotiate with that strategy, right? You can't, well, let's see if we can meet in the middle somewhere. There is no like half dead, okay? That, 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 that doesn't work. There's no negotiating here. There, there's no middle ground to be had. The, their only position is that the, the Jews should be dead. And so these, this is the type of mindset that's in place with this edict. Now, it's also important to note that Mordecai's edict here, all it really, what, what it's really doing is reversing the edict of Haman in chapter 3. So you go back and read that, and then you read this, and it's a reversal, and it's continuing the theme of the whole chapter, where everything is being reversed. And so all of this now is being reversed. Also, the violence here that is being permitted and allowed is limited to one day, okay? This is not some decree, hey, go start a holy war, and it's going to last like weeks or months or years or anything like that. No, no, no. You've got one day, okay? The 13th day of the 12th month. That's the day. That's it. it you know, and what's more, you have the authority to kill those who are coming to attack you. You don't just get to go out in the street and start asking people, are you an Agagite? Are you an Agagite? Are you an Agagite? You are? All right, boom, you're dead. No, no, no. It's not that. It's you can defend yourself with people who attack you on this one day. Now, if that edict was not in place, what could happen was, hey, the Persians attack, the Jews defend, and then what do the Persians do the next day? Well, they come back and they attack again because you weren't legally right in defending yourself because the legal uh, consequence for, for you, the law in the book, was that you die on this day. And because you didn't allow yourself to be murdered, well, now let's carry it out the next day. But now they are legally right in defending themselves and in, in, in acting in self-defense. It's also important to understand that the Bible distinguishes between murder and between killing, okay? It's two different things, right? So, for instance, this might get a little confusing, but in the Ten Commandments, the command is, thou shalt not kill. It's not, thou shalt not murder. Now, I know, if you memorized it in the King James Version, you memorized, thou shalt not kill. I'm not talking about the King James, I'm talking about the Hebrew, okay? In the Hebrew, the word is, it's best translated murder, but it has with it this connotation of murder and also any death that happens because of carelessness or negligence, all right? So in that sense, you know, first, second, third degree murder, all, okay? So th that's the Hebrew, thou shall not murder, not thou shall not kill. Again, you can look throughout Scripture numerous times when God does give the instruction to kill, right? And, you know, it's never what you want 
right? We, we love life. We believe all people are made in the image of God. We value life greatly. It's sad when anyone has to die. But sometimes in Scripture, the most just thing, the instruction that happens is to kill those who are murderous before there is an atrocity for the multitudes. And sometimes the only way to protect people is to engage evil. And sometimes engaging evil requires killing. It's never optimal, but sometimes it's what happens. Some theologians have likened this to, the, to our armed forces or even uh, police uh, in our day, that hey, you know, we, we should never exercise that authority to go out and just murder people, but sometimes you stand up and, you, uh, and the most just thing is to kill people who have murderous intentions so that greater atrocities don't take place. Um, it's also important to note here that while the instruction is given to the, uh, allowable, they're permitted to kill women and children, when you flip over to Esther chapter 9, we're not told that any women or children were actually killed, right? Again, this is a reversal of what of the edict that was in Esther 3 that Haman put in place. And so basically what he's saying is, hey, if women and children come to your door and they're trying to murder you, you can kill them if you have to. And then you flip to Esther 9, it doesn't seem like that took place. What's more, they're also given the right, again, a reversal of Esther 3, that you can plunder the people who come and, and, and try, to, try to murder you. And then in Esther 9, it says they actually didn't do that. They didn't, they didn't plunder the people who tried to murder them. They, they just left their goods as it was. And so uh, without this law being put in place, uh, many, many, many more would have died. Okay, You had about 500 people who die uh, of the Persians who try to attack the Jews. If the law is not in place, you'd have had hundreds of thousands of Jews die throughout the provinces of Persia. And so this edict is about self defense. And it was put in place because the edict of Haman could not be rescinded. And so the king allowed a new edict to be put in place that would provide for the Jews to defend themselves. Now, when justice is carried out, or and even as the edict is put in place, there's rejoicing, right? The Jews are excited. There's a holiday. There's a feast because they know they're going to live. It's exciting. But at the same time, when justice is carried out, there's also mourning. You know, that's how it is with justice. That's the right attitude towards justice. Justice takes place because there's sin that's been committed. And so, you know, for here, the Jews, they're rejoicing. They're exciting. They're excited. But the next day, or, or when the 13th day of the 12th month comes, what happens? Well, there's mourning. Because all those Persians, well... They had mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and wives and girlfriends and things like this. And so there's also mourning. And that's how it is with justice. A right attitude towards justice ought to bring about mourning and rejoicing. By the way, parents, as you're parenting your kids, this is a great uh, just kind of reality to have like gospel-centered parenting, right? When, you, when there's discipline in place, there ought to be mourning over the sin, right? We teach our children to mourn over the wrong things that they've done, and here's why there's consequences for this behavior and all this. But at the same time, there's rejoicing because the ultimate price of this sin was paid for by Jesus so that you don't have to pay for it, right? And so that's gospel, just centered thinking and discipline as you're raising kids, 
uh, the edict goes into place, and it's delivered throughout all of Persia, right? Just like the previous one. Uh, Mordecai's making sure, hey, this is going to be written in every language. It's getting out there to all the people. Everybody knows. Jews can defend themselves. And so word gets out. And his word gets out at the same time. Mordecai, he gets a major like wardrobe upgrade. You know, I mean, last time we saw what kind of clothes he was wearing. He's covered in sackcloth and ashes. Uh, and now hey, he's got he's got royal robes, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and it's exciting. He's got purple, uh, the wealth, the sign of wealth. And he's paraded around Susa. And as he's paraded around, everybody's cheering and they're excited and they're rejoicing. Again, it's 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 just this reversal of Haman. Because when Haman, when you, when you pass by Haman, what did you have to do? You had to bow, bow before him. You had to honor him. Now the honor is going to Mordecai, and it's not compelled. People are gladly just excited to see Mordecai, right? It's not compelled. They're just singing and they're rejoicing. And then I want you to see this line. It says that many peoples from the country declared themselves Jews. Many people are now identifying as God's people, worshiping the one true God. There's fear of the Jews there. They, they see this reversal taking place. There's some fear, but it's also this recognition. Man, Mordecai, Esther, there's something about them. And I believe it kind of raises this question for us, and it's who, who are you discipling? You know, who, who are you witnessing to? I mean, if, because understand this, if you're a Christian, you're a missionary, okay? If you're a Christian, you're a missionary. And you may say, well, no, 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 no. You know, I'm not like in vocational ministry. I'm not, I'm not a minister or anything like that, a missionary. You know, Esther and Mordecai, they could say the same thing. They're not in vocational ministry. They're not like, they didn't go to Persia to be missionaries or anything like that. But this is how God is using them. And you say, well, but I've made all these choices, you know. I'm really kind of compromised, if you knew my history, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I'm really up for that. Listen, Esther and Mordecai, they're pretty compromised people, okay? We know their history. It's not too good, but God is using them. And I say, well, I'd like to be, but I just don't know the Bible that well. If I knew the Bible a little better and could talk about it, you know, then maybe I'd share. We have no indication that Esther and Mordecai know the Bible that well at all. They, they really don't appear to be Bible scholars. In fact, Esther, when she's like, you know, knows that all this is coming with the king. What, what does she say? Hey, tell all the Jews to fast for me. She leaves out prayer altogether. You know, she just totally forgets about that. That we have no indication that these people really know the scriptures that well. But God uses them, right? They're, they're compromised people. They're in a place where they should not be. They're, they're not Bible scholars. They're not, they didn't go into this to be missionaries. And yet God uses them. You know, sometimes God saves us out of some mess. And we think the thing that we got to do is just like, well, I got, I got to remove myself from all those people and just kind of get away as fast as I can. And sometimes there's wisdom in that, yes. But you know what? Sometimes, yeah, you weren't supposed to be there to begin with. But now the fact that you're there and you have those relationships, God is going to use you in that place anyway. And that's what he's doing with Mordecai and Esther. They were not supposed to be in Persia, but they're there. And so as they become really awakened and they grow spiritually in their relationship with God, he's going to use them there in such a way that other people are saying, you know what? I think I'll be a Jew too. That doesn't look so bad. 
If you're a Christian, you are a missionary. Now, as we look at how Mordecai acted as a missionary, I couldn't help but see Jesus the ultimate missionary who came for all of us. Mordecai, you know, he wrote down a message of life and he had it translated into a lot of different languages for many people. But God sent his perfect scriptures to be translated into thousands of languages for all people. Mordecai, he allowed God's enemies to be killed for their sin. But Jesus, he came to die for our sin, for the sins of his enemies. The death of the enemies during Mordecai's day allowed God's people to live. Jesus died in the place of his enemies so that we all could live. This death sentence that was put in place in Mordecai's day, it could not be rescinded. Likewise, death comes to all men because all have sinned. Mordecai, he put in this edict of self-defense so that people could live for a while. Jesus, he died for our sin, not so that the death sentence would be rescinded, but so that our death sentence would be rendered moot because we are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. And Mordecai, when he comes through Susa, All the people are singing, they're rejoicing, they're excited to see him. There will be a day when everyone will sing and praise the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. In the meantime, we're missionaries. We're sent to wherever it is. We live, work, study, and play to tell the good news of this gospel message of Jesus Christ, who is our living hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you just for, for who you are and for what you've done for us. God, that you didn't put some kind of edict in place where we could try to defend ourselves because of our sin. Well, because that would never work. Our defenses would never mount up. So God, instead, you allowed your son to be sin for us, to bear the weight of our, uh, of our sin. God, and because of that, uh, we can be covered in the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for that. And we thank you that you don't simply save us for heaven, but God, you save us with a purpose now to go and to tell other people about the good news of your son, Jesus. Help us to do that. We recognize we need your help. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.